Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody that's here tonight. Uh, glad to have you with us there online. Uh, hopefully, uh, you're there on one of those platforms, uh, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Be sure to heart to like, to share, and follow. Uh, subscribe there on YouTube and retweet us on Twitter. And welcome to those who are listening on our phone live uh, streaming service. If you need that number, please call the church office. If you're here in person, see me after the service. I'll be glad to give that to you. If you have access to our church website at home, go to Highland Baptist Church. Dot com. It's under the info tab. You can download uh, today's worship bulletin as well as uh, the children's worship bulletins. Those are in the windowsill to my right still that you can pick up. And then also the prayer list is on the table out here across from the office, uh, but you can find it under that info tab also. That will be updated uh, this coming Wednesday with the new prayer request that we mentioned this morning. And I failed to give Tommy one this morning, uh, Miss Marlene Parker, uh, if you'll add her to your prayer list. She was added for us on this upcoming one. Uh, that'll be printed, uh, but I forgot to give it to him to give the verbal uh, one there, but her cancer is back, and so I uh, want to keep her uh, in our prayers uh, with that. And so uh, also want to encourage you, if you have uh, that access to the church website, go to the far right-hand side there, uh, click the Give Online tab there. You can do your regular online giving. You can do your uh, Lottie Moon Christmas giving for international missions. Uh, both of those are set up there, real easy platform. Uh, for you to do that. And then also don't forget still the who's your one uh, emphasis. Uh, be praying for those ones uh, who God has laid on your heart uh, who don't know Christ as their Lord and their Savior. So be sure uh, to fill one of those out, tear the blue piece off, place it in an offering plate. We'll record that and then later we'll put that over here on the cross. So be sure to take the time uh, to do that. If you need that at home, please call us. We'll be glad to send you one at home uh, so that you can send that back in to us. But thank you for being here with us tonight. Brother Mike, if you'll come and lead us. Good evening. Take your hymnals and turn to 54. Great is thy faithfulness. Number 54. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. Morning by morning, new mercies 
Amen. Great is God's faithfulness to us. And that's one of the things we always need to keep in mind and always remember that his faithfulness is always there, uh, even when others around us are not as faithful. Well, take your Bibles tonight and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 18. And as you're turning there, um, we're going to read just a few of the verses here. Uh, in just a moment uh, with verse 1 uh, down through about verse uh, 9 and then we'll kick off into the rest of the message uh, tonight. This message I've entitled, With Ten We Can Win. And there's an implication of that that you'll see as we go through this passage. There's two things uh, mainly and prioritized that we're going to see uh, in this chapter, but there's a lot of ground that we're going to cover in these 33 verses tonight. And so uh, let's just go ahead, and I think this probably won't be in the exact order that I have it on my slides, uh, but let's just go ahead and go to Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, uh, down through verse um, 9, and we'll start with that. So let's stand as we read God's Word in honor of His Word. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. And rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds, of, uh, curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your word this morning. And as we get into this wonderful chapter, Lord, make the Old Testament here be powerful and alive, but especially applicable to our lives as we go through this chapter tonight. Help us to see the relevancy and the things that we can learn, the lessons we can learn from Abraham and Sarah uh, and from uh, the, his prayer, especially uh, for the city of Sodom. Father, I pray that you would uh, use this passage to burden our hearts uh, once again for the lost around us, for, for others, Lord, who are in need. And Father, I pray that uh, you will just bless this message in a powerful way. Uh, Lord, may you have your way and your will in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you be seated. You know, as we come to this chapter here, one of the things we're going to see is that God requires the impossible. Uh, you remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis here, we're going to see, well, actually it's a little bit later, uh, not in Genesis, but further over, uh, you see the story of Gideon. Uh, you remember the story of Gideon? God's purpose in that story uh, of what happened to Gideon there was to give the Midianites into the hand of Gideon. Gideon had an army, uh, if you'll remember, uh, that was a, a lot of men, and it got down to 10,000 men, and, and uh, there was the enemies who were organized against him, the, the Midianites and the Amalekites, as numerous as the sands uh, on the seashore. And so uh, God did something uh, that was... Uh, very typical of God, but very not typical for us. In Judges chapter 7 and verse 2, the Bible says that the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. <coughs> and so if you remember, it had already looked impossible uh, for Israel to defeat the Midianites because all they had was 10,000 men against so many. But God said 10,000 is too many. Uh, and, and then he narrows it down and gets it all the way down to 300. Uh, and, and that's the number that's, that's settled on there as, as you go through that story and read. But God had said 10,000 was too many. Why did he say that? He said that because he was saying, my purpose is to display my glory and to help you see how utterly dependent you are on my sovereign grace. And that's what we're going to see here in this story because this is the purpose of God in all that he does in creation and redemption. God's purpose in all that he does is to magnify his sovereign grace and to keep us in a humble place. And one of the central beliefs that we have as God's people is that this is good news, not bad news. Uh, it's good news because God himself, uh, God himself in the person of Jesus Christ is more valuable and more satisfying than anything we ever could be and do in our own power. And so the most loving thing that God can do for us is to make himself indispensable to us. The most loving thing that God can do for us is to not make much of us, but to work by his sovereign grace so that we make more of him, uh, that we enjoy making much of him forever. And so if, if he would love us, then he has to exalt his sovereign grace and keep us in a humble place. That's the point of the story of Gideon. That's why God over and over and over again in the Bible does things in a way that makes us utterly dependent on God for what is humanly impossible. 
to magnify His grace and to keep us humble. And so what we see here in Genesis chapter 18 is the very same thing. So I want you to see some truths that we need to learn from this passage when we look at the impossible that God does. And that's the first point we see here is that God does do the impossible. What seems impossible for us is possible for God. And so here we see that these, these men have come <clears throat> to, to meet uh, Abraham. In fact, they have come to share with him uh, the, the news of what God is about to do to the city of Sodom. Now, if you remember in our story that we've been reading through already, who's living in Sodom? Lot. Lot, his nephew, is living in Sodom. And so he, he went down towards the valley of Sodom, and he's just gradually moved his way uh, on down. So when you come to this first part here, uh, we're going to get to that part about Sodom here in just a moment. But this first part is about the birth of Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah, the child of promise. And so get some of the details of this story in front of you. You may have been with here, here with us before, maybe you haven't, but let me just give you a, a brief summary, if you will, of where we at, are at. So according to Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, Abraham's wife Sarah uh, was barren even before they came to the promised land. Here's what it says. Sarah was barren, she had no child. Now this wasn't by any coincidence, this was planned by God. We know that because if you go to Genesis chapter 16 and verse 2, here's what Sarah said. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She understood that it was the Lord's part of God's plan. For whatever reason, she didn't understand, but she knew that God had prevented her from bearing children. And so God is putting in place circumstances uh, that will make the fulfillment of his promise humanly impossible. What's the promise? The promise was is that Abraham would have many offspring, many descendants. It, his offspring would become a great nation. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So understand when the promise came. The promise came after the knowledge that Sarah was barren. So notice that God had closed her womb and then he made the promise. So now if Abraham believes the promise, it will be believing not just in the ability of God to predict the future, but in the power of God uh, to fulfill what was humanly impossible so that he would have to trust uh, God's power and God's grace, and that God would get the glory. Now, we don't naturally, in our flesh, trust God so easily. In fact, it goes against uh, our fallen nature. And so here's what usually uh, happens. Uh, when we meet a situation like this that Abraham and Sarah are facing, we try to think of ways that, that we can actually make it happen by our own ordinary human means. Well, you see that happen here for Abraham and Sarah in the previous chapters that we've gone through. So we watch this in Abraham's life, and the first natural thought that he has is that God may fulfill this promise, uh, his promise to make him a great nation by raising up heirs uh, to him through his slave, through his servant, Eleazar. You remember that? 
And he says, maybe it's through Eleazar that he's going to do this. I'm too old. My wife Sarah's too old. To, we're, we're past the point of bearing children, and she hasn't borne born any children yet. And so uh, God uh, sets Abraham straight there and makes sure that he sees how impossible he really means for the promise to be. When you look at Genesis chapter 15 and verse 2 down through verse 4, notice what it says. Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So God cuts off Abraham's escape, if you will. Uh, no, Abraham, uh, he's telling him, my promise is not going to be fulfilled in humanly any humanly possible way of using your slave, your servant here, as your legal heir. My way, God is saying to him, is going to be humanly impossible. You're going to become a great nation through your own physical seed, through your own biological son. And so we see there uh, God uh, does the impossible. He begins to lay it out here in the promise. Then we see God's requirement for us of faith. Uh, and that's where we come here as we see uh, that they have said, where uh, is Sarah? And then verse 11, it says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And then he says this in verse 14, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. So God had made a promise, and God says this is the way it's going to be fulfilled. It's not going to be fulfilled through Eleazar. It's not going to be filled through Hagar. It's going to be fulfilled through Sarah. Sarah, you may think you're worn out. Sarah, you may think you're old. And there's no way that you could have a child. Verse 13 or verse uh, 14, uh, he says, the Lord says to Abraham, is there anything that's too hard for the Lord? Let me ask you that tonight. Is there anything that is too hard for the Lord? Absolutely not. There is nothing that is too hard for the Lord. So as a result of that, God requires faith from us. And so we come to verse 15 down through verse 19. So what does God require from Abraham? He requires that Abraham believe him. He requires that Abraham trust him. So God, you remember, he had taken Abraham out before and, and said to him in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5, uh, he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and, the, and number the stars if you're able to number them. And, and then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then the Lord said in verse 6, or the, the verse says in verse 6, that he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That, that's the faith that corresponds to the impossible. So there's one more escape hatch, though, 
uh, from God's sovereign grace and the humanly impossible promise. We've seen here that God says it's going to be from your seed. Uh, it's going to be from you, Abraham. Uh, and God has only said that the son of the promise would come from his body, not from Sarah's body. He didn't promise that. And so what about using Hagar? Maybe we could use Hagar to get the promise to come true. And so Abraham and Sarah, you remember they took matters into their own hands with Hagar and she gave birth to Ishmael. But that wasn't God's plan for how his promise would be fulfilled. And so God's promise was going to depend on sovereign grace, not on human ingenuity. So anytime we feel like I think I've just got to take matters into my own hands to fix the situation in my life, then we need to be careful with that and make sure that it's the Lord who's leading us to do that, that it's the Lord who's leading us and guiding us to do certain things, lest we get ahead of the Lord and mess things up worse than they are to start with. And so God's promise had to depend on God's grace and not on human ingenuity. Ishmael wasn't the son of promise precisely because he was, human, it, he was humanly possible. And so then uh, we come to Genesis chapter 17 and verse 15 through verse 16, uh, which is about 13 years later. And you'll remember that God said to Abraham, he said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Not by Hagar, not by somebody else, but by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. And that was a great setback for Abraham because he thought, the, the human way figured out to have heirs from his own body just as God said he would. And now God says, no, uh, I, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do the impossible way, Abraham. It's going to come through Sarah. Even though uh, there's no way you two could make this happen, I can. And so Abraham's faith wavered for a moment in Genesis 17, 17, when Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And he pleaded with God to, to fulfill his promise in a less spectacular way. In Genesis 17, verse 18 and 19, you remember that here is Abraham who says, Lord, all uh, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Surely, God, you could bring it through Ishmael. But God said in verse 19, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And so understand why God won't settle for the humanly, the human, uh, possi humanly possibility here. You see it in verse 10. He said, again, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And here's the promise, Sarah shall have a son. And what was Sarah doing? She was listening at the tent door, and, and she was listening behind the tent door. And verse 11 says, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself. You ever laugh to yourself? Nobody hears you. You think you get away with it. Because here, 
it was an implication here, God, you're crazy. How in the world is this going to happen? I don't believe what you're saying. When she laughed, that's what she was doing. And so uh, when she laughs, she thought, I'm just laughing inside, but the Lord said to her, she, or she said, after I'm worn out, my Lord is old, uh, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And there's a lot of things in our lives that we think nobody sees, nobody knows, but understand this, God does. He knows. He knows your faith, your trust in Him. And so why won't God settle for the humanly possible? Why? Why won't God opt for anything less than the path of impossibility? I think he gives us the answer there in those verses, in verse 10 through verse 14, because God comes to Abraham and he makes that promise again. It's right there in those verses where he says uh, that, that he's going to make uh, him a great nation uh, as he had promised before. And that's the reason God won't settle for anything less than the path of impossibility. Notice verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. It was about the issue of is there anything too impossible for the Lord. Uh, and that's the reason that God won't settle for anything less than the path of impossibility because his aim is to show that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. His purpose in all that he does is to magnify his grace and to keep us in a humble place. And that's exactly what God did when the Lord, and what the Lord did for Sarah, just like he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, and they named him Isaac. You see, God planned and God worked in a way that made the promise to Abraham humanly impossible. Think about it. He saw to it that Sarah was barren from the beginning. He refused the human solution of, of, of legal heir uh, named Eleazar. He rejected the human solution uh, of having relations with Hagar to bring about Ishmael. God waited until Abraham and Sarah were old and she was beyond childbearing years before the, chi before the, the child of promise was even born. And then fifthly, God predicted the very time of the child's birth. He said, next year at this time, I'll be here and Sarah's going to have a baby. In all of those ways, God acted to make clear that sovereign grace and not human initiative or human ingenuity brought about the child a promise. And then we come to the next half of this chapter that reminds us of the necessity of prayer. That if we believe what we have just read, that there is nothing that's impossible for the Lord then when we're faced with dire situations, we, have to, we have, ought to have that necessity of prayer in our hearts and in our lives. And so we come to chapter 18 here, verse 20, uh, down to verse 23, and we see the dependence on God. Let me show you something here in verse 20 and verse 21. It says, then the Lord said, uh, well, let's, let's just go back just a few verses here to pick up where we uh, had left off. Let's go back to verse 15. You'll remember that Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh, because God does know. 
And then those men who they had prepared this meal for set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And then notice the, the, what the Lord says here in verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Should I tell him or should I not? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Should I tell him or should I not? Verse 19 goes on to say, The Lord says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, here's where I want you to focus in on in verse 20 and verse 21. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, the, that term there, outcry or cry out, is a Hebrew term that means a cry that is a result of, of violent injustice, of violent oppression. Who is the ones who are crying out? It's the poor. And, and that's why I want you to see here the necessity of prayer because of the perversion of Sodom and the perversion of the things we see around us in the world. We see this in verse, in verse 20. The outcry has come against Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, and that outcry is great, and their sin is very grave. Now, what was the sin of Sodom? What was it that these people were doing that it caused God to, as we're going to see, to obliterate them? Well, Ezekiel tells us the answer. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 49 says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. So here's the sins of Sodom in this verse in Ezekiel 16, 49. Pride. Now understand, there's a sin that God hates more than sexual perversion, and it's pride. Many who will never commit uh, perverted sins are eaten up with pride in their hearts. And it's the very first thing that God listed of the sins that he hates in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16 to verse 19. You can go and read that if you want. God hates the sin of pride. James 4, 6 tells us. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5 says it, that God resists the proud. It's not that God fails to help us when we're proud, but it actually stands in our way because all of heaven is set against the pride of, of individuals. You know that there are some who will never get saved because they will never admit their need to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Jesus reserved his harshest words, you remember, for the Pharisees. And he, said, he, he reminded them and told them that they were eaten up in their hearts with pride. He said, because you say you have no sin, your sin remains. And so often we come to church Sunday after Sunday and we sit there proud and haughty and unbroken before an almighty God. And God hates pride. Had there been no pride, there would have been no devil. 
And Sodom is a testimony as to how God hates the sin of pride. But it wasn't just about pride. Notice it was also about gluttony, fullness of bread. Uh, look at what it said uh, there in Ezekiel uh, in that verse, in verse 49, excess of food. They were materialistic. They, they weren't thinking about the things of the Spirit. They were only thinking about the things of the flesh. They were living to gratify the flesh with excess of food. And then he says idleness or, or prosperous ease. They had become lazy. Work had become a thing of the past. They had been cursed with blessings. And there had been so many things that had happened to them that their prosperity had become their curse. God intends for us to work somehow, some way, uh, until we die. We're here to serve the Lord. And one of the worst things that could happen to a nation is when people get the idea that they're not supposed to work anymore. The freedom people wish for the most is the freedom from responsibility. And when you look at America, America is filled with people who want to be free, free from responsibility. And when we see that and when we get that kind of freedom, we lose every other kind of freedom and we'll become enslaved and eventually condemned. And then we see selfishness. Ezekiel 16 verse 49 said, But they did not aid the needy, the poor. In every city across America and even around this world, there are people who desperately need our help. There are people who, who don't even have enough to eat. They don't have a decent place to live. Uh, they don't have a, a place to, uh, to eat, clothes to wear. And we as God's people ought to be looking for people that we can help. Find somebody that you can help and help them. And if we fail to do good to them, we become like Sodom of old who would not help the poor and the needy. And then Ezekiel 16 verse 50 goes on to show us the immorality uh, of, their, uh, the, of their sin. Verse 50 says, they were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Now what was the abomination that they committed? Well, the abomination they committed were sexual perversions, and, and God calls that abomination. Deuteronomy 20:13 says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Do you see it? This is what Ezekiel is talking about when he says they were haughty and committed abomination. They were proud of it. They were arrogant. They were proud of their sinfulness in the lifestyles that they were living. Do you see that today? Most certainly. Today is not just in our movies and it's not just in TV programs. It's in, it's in marriages and relationships and God have mercy upon us as a nation. That was the sin of ancient Sodom. And it's also the sin here today. There's nothing that will ruin a nation quicker than the sin of Sodom. In fact, Isaiah lamented and cried that Jerusalem is ruined. What ruined Jerusalem? God's people, God's holy city. What ruined Jerusalem? Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 8 says, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying His glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom, they do not hide it. Woe to them. 
for they have brought evil on themselves. What a picture of where we are today. There's no shame about it. There's no even trying to hide it. It's out there full circle for us to see. It's in our schools for our kids to see. And so not only have they committed the sin of Sodom, but they become proud of it. You know, when you have a society that's made up of depraved men and women and disobedient children, that society is on its last legs. Here was a city that was arrogant in their sexual immorality. Here they were with children who had no respect for their elders. God's anger is at the way Sodom has harmed his creation and how they have harmed each other. You know, when you love something, you hate the thing that destroys it. And if you love someone, you hate the cancer that ravages their body. And you're willing to see that, that violent chemotherapy to remove it. And God's love is like that. God's love, like all true love, includes God's judgment, God's wrath, wrath toward the things that destroys what he loves. When we think about God's wrath, we have a lot of questions. There's a phrase I want you to see. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be it, be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Now some things that we see may seem odd to us now, but that's because we don't see them clearly. We understand that God is a righteous judge, but we wonder why does God allow things to continue on like they are? The Bible teaches that the judge of all the earth will do right. And if we can't understand why God does what he does, then it's because we don't understand some things. Now, in the Bible, Sodom is mentioned six times in the Old Testament. It's mentioned four times in the New Testament. And when Sodom is mentioned, it's always mentioned in a frightening and fearful sense because it was an exceedingly wicked city and because God destroyed Sodom with fire and brimstone. Here's what the New Testament says about Sodom in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them with an overthrow, making them an example to, for those that after should live ungodly. So Sodom has even become an example to us. You see, God doesn't change. God said, I am the Lord. I change not. So understand this. Given the same set of circumstances, what God did before, God will do again. The Bible says that as it was in the days of Lot, so it shall be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. He says that, uh, that it was, as it was written, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So what are we to do? Notice the prayer of the saint in verse 17. In verse 17, down through verse 33, we see, first of all, Abraham began to pray when God told Abraham what he was going to do. So the Lord had said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation, a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of, his, of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Verse 20. 
Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men, verse 22, turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Abraham was a friend of God. And what we're going to see here is that Abraham, in essence here, steps between God and his judgment and this wicked city of Sodom. Verse 23 goes on to say that Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So he begins his prayer here. So when Abraham hears what God is going to do, he begs God not to. He prays for the city. So notice what he says. He says, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Verse 24. He says, and we'll just continue on down through uh, the end of the chapter here, I believe. Uh, Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And then he goes on to say again, he spoke to him and said, Well, suppose forty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And the Lord answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of the ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. So notice in this prayer, Abraham is praying for the city. He's not praying for himself, but for the city. Here's what's significant about that. These were not good people. They had not been good to Abraham himself. Go back and read the book of Genesis before this and you'll find that. And you'll see that these people had treated Abraham very badly. And yet here is Abraham who is praying for the city of Sodom. Now it may seem here like what Abraham is doing is kind of backhandedly trying to save his nephew Lot because according to the story, Lot lived in Sodom. So maybe Abraham was thinking if he could get God to spare the city, he could get Lot out. But if that's the case, why didn't Abraham just say that? Why didn't he just say to the Lord, Lord, would you just not destroy Lot, get him out, and, and then you can just cover those, uh, those heathens with whatever, you can do whatever to them? 
That would have been much less of a, of a request, much easier than what Abraham was asking of God. No, Abraham is actually praying for the city, the city that had been so unkind to him. In, in essence, what he is being to this city is he is being the priest to this, this city. He is standing before God on Sodom's behalf, praying for their good even when they deserved God's judgment. He even takes his own life into his hands because he keeps saying, God, God, don't be mad with me. Let me ask you one more thing. God, God, uh, don't, don't just, would you just let me say one more thing here? And he keeps saying that, God, don't be mad with me. He's risking his life to pray for them. He's doing what God had chosen him to do, as verse 18 had told us. He's saying, I have chosen Abraham that he would be a blessing to all the nations. And now what happens next is we see this haggling that goes back and forth, and it's kind of a bizarre uh, encounter, but it has a deep theological lesson. As verse 23 told us, when Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Notice it says that Abraham drew near or he approached God. Now in English... The saying that he approached there seems redundant because where is Abraham already? He's already standing before the Lord. He's already standing right before God. He doesn't need to come closer. Uh, it's kind of like he's three feet away and, and now is he going to step closer and only be a foot away? But you see that word approach in the Hebrew is a technical word. That means to approach, to approach like the bench in a court of law to approach the judge. You know, you see that on the, on the law shows how a lawyer will come up to the bench. I mean, he's within, the, the, the judge sees him. The judge is right there, but he comes up to the bench to speak personally to the judge. That's Abraham who's appealing to the justice of God. And notice again there in verse 23, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? In other words, what he's saying is, won't God, won't you do what is right? For the sake of 50 righteous, would you spare the city? I know you hate injustice, but you do love righteousness so much. And aren't you a merciful God? For the sake of those 50 righteous, if you could find those, wouldn't you spare the city? Now, he knows that God is just and hates injustice, but he also knows that God loves, uh, that God loves righteousness, and he loves people. And so he says, for the sake of the righteous God, won't you spare the wicked? And the answer is yes. God says yes. If there's 50, I will spare all those wicked people. God does hate injustice, but he loves righteousness more. And he loves people. And he loves to forgive. And for the sake of 50 righteous, he would certainly spare thousands of wicked people in this city. And so we saw how Abraham works his way down 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, kind of like an auctioneer almost, going back and forth with God. And each time God is saying, yes, I'll spare the city for 40. Yes, I'll spare the city for 30. Yes, I'll spare the city for 20. Yes, I'll spare the city for 10. But then all of a sudden, it stops. And Abraham just stops. It never resolves. 
I mean, think about it. Abraham's on a roll. He's bargained with God from 50 down to 10. Why doesn't he keep going on down to one? God, if you could just find one in this city. It's like you're waiting on this climatic moment that never comes. It's like playing seven notes on a piano scale, and then you don't hit that last one. You don't end it. Why doesn't Abraham keep going? Why doesn't he go all the way down to say, would you do it for one? Here's why. Because evidently he recognizes there isn't even one in the city who's righteous. There's not one who's righteous enough for God to spare the city. And so it ends, and God destroys the city. He saves Abraham's nephew Lot, but he destroys the city. Abraham had started to pray for the city of Sodom. That's a lesson for us, that we as the church need to be praying for America. We need to be praying for the lost around us. We need to be more like Abraham, who's willing to become an intercessor. You know, you, when you go back to verse 22 and, and verse 23, it, it tells us there that the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. Here are these angels of God going to bring the judgment of God upon Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham is imposing, interposes himself between these men and Sodom and starts praying and starts pleading. What a picture that is of what we need to be doing every day, interceding for lost people. That we're standing between God's judgment upon them and where they are, saying, God, would you spare whatever that person's name is? God, if, if, if they're going to come to faith in Christ, Lord, would you give me one opportunity? Lord, let me stand in the gap. And so he starts praying and he starts pleading and he started to plead. And because of the prayers and the intercession of Abraham, God delayed his judgment on Sodom and God worked in the heart and the life of Lot who didn't deserve it, but there was somebody who was interceding for him. There was somebody who was praying for him. If God had done what he said he was going to do at that moment, if Abraham had not interceded at that moment, I firmly believe God's judgment would have come upon Sodom, and as a result, Lot would have been caught up in the whole matter. But because Abraham was praying for the city, God spared Lot. Think about it. Lot wasn't praying. Lot was so mixed up down in Sodom, he was living on the borderline of sin as a carnal Christian. You know, he couldn't see the hand of God raised in judgment. He couldn't tell what time it was. But Abraham, the friend of God, who knew what was about to happen, Abraham decided, I better pray. And he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. And because he prayed, God moved, and God answered his intercessory prayer. I don't know about all these people's names that are on this cross over here, but I know they need somebody to intercede for them. Because if they are lost, they are bound for an eternity in hell. Notice his prayer. His prayer was a courageous prayer, as you see there in verse 22 and verse 23. When it says that he stood before the Lord, what does that mean? He just placed himself between God and judgment. It's almost like he's saying, by standing between God and the people who deserve the judgment, Lord, let their judgment be on me. I stand here in the middle, 
And the judgment could have come upon him. He started, as it were, to argue or to reason with God. And notice that Abraham praised God's word. He says here, Lord, I know from, from what I ha know from your word that you are righteous and that you are a righteous God. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He said in verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That was God's word. And so he begins to pray God's word in prayer. You know, when we intercede before God for others and we pray God's word, what a courageous prayer that is as we stand between them and the judgment that's to come. It was also a contrite prayer. Verse 27 tells us that. Remember what verse 27 said? Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. So you see the humility in his prayer there. He's being humble. He's a man trembling before God. He knows that, that God could strike him for, for standing between him and the judgment that's about to come. Oh, how we need to be broken and prostrate before God. We ought to be using God's word in our prayer, and we ought to put prayer, be praying using God's promises, but we should also be using God's character. But oh, how we need this brokenness. See, true revival is where we're broken before God, where we become like Abraham. I'm nothing but dust, Lord. I know I'm nothing, and I know I'm not perfect, and I know you don't even have to listen to me, but I care about Joe over here, or I care about Sue over here who doesn't know Christ. Revival is where the people of God get a hold of God in intercession, in contrite, humble prayers, but also notice it was a compassionate prayer. Here he's praying for others. He's not praying for himself. He's not asking anything for himself. When is the last time that you missed a night's sleep to pray over somebody who was lost? When's the last time you came with a broken heart before God? When, when's the last time you were broken over the lost people of Tullahoma? When was the last time you were broken over the lost people in your family? Would you plead for God for revival? Would you plead for God for revival in America? Pray that God would move on the hearts of those that are not saved and that God would have mercy upon our sin. It was a compassionate prayer. But it was also a confident prayer. Because notice in verse 25 it, it, how he speaks to the Lord here. He says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham had such confidence in God. See, we know that from the Scripture that because of Jesus Christ, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. And here's Abraham who has a confidence in God that God is going to do the right thing, no doubt, whatever. He based his prayer on what he knew about God. Abraham knew the ways of God. He was a friend of God. He knew the character of God. He knew the righteousness of God. And so he could stand also in a confidence in this prayer, knowing, God, I know that you can do this because you're righteous and you are just. But it was also a conquering prayer. Because notice what happens over in Genesis chapter 19, in verse 29. And so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. What did he remember? He remembered this. He remembered Abraham praying, speaking to him. 
God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Not because of Lot, but because of Abraham, Lot was delivered. God remembered Abraham. So here was an intercessor. Here was a man who knew how to intercede. Understand this, the future of our nation does not lie in Washington, D.C. It lies with the people of God who get on their knees and pray and seek God. Abraham got a hold of God. Do you know what can change the destiny of a nation by intercession? There was a time when God's people would have God would have spared his people Israel, but he didn't spare them. Because the, the reason he didn't spare them is found in Ezekiel 22 and verse 30. Nobody interceded. Ezekiel 22, 30 says, And I sought for a man, I sought for anybody among them, who should build up the wall and stand in the breach, stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Are we standing in the gap today, praying before the Lord? The eyes of the Lord were searching the earth. Where are the intercessors? Are there 50? Where, where is there someone who will make up the hedge of protection? Are there 40? Where is someone who will stand in the gap like Abraham did? Are there 30? Are there 20? Are there 10? God said, I was looking for someone so I wouldn't have to destroy the land. And I could not find not one intercessor. With 10, we can win. We need men and women and boys and girls like Abraham who will pray, who will intercede and say, God, would you please stay your hand of mercy and God have mercy on your people. Have mercy on this nation. Lord, bring salvation to people's hearts. Oh, that we would intercede. Is there even just one who will intercede? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word tonight. Lord, I pray that there is more than one who would stand in the gap for those who are lost. Lord, thank you that Abraham did that, not just for Lot. He was doing it for all those wicked people even in the city of Sodom. Lord, there's a lot of wicked people around us, people who are involved in all kinds of immorality, all kinds of deplorable sin that we would have nothing to do with. But Lord, they need Jesus, just like we needed Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be burdened in our hearts to pray to pray for our nation, to pray for our state, to pray for our city, to pray for our community, to pray for our one so that they might come to faith in Jesus, so that they might receive the free gift of salvation and escape the judgment of their sin. So Father, I pray that you would just speak into our hearts tonight. 
Lord, that if we're here tonight and we don't know Christ as our Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that we would call out to you and ask you to save us from our sin, acknowledging our sin, admitting, Lord, that we believe in what Christ did for us on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb, and ask Christ to live in our hearts and help us to live for him all the days of our life. Lord, I pray that we would put that some way in our own words and all sincerity and know beyond a shadow of a doubt from your word that we are saved. But Lord, there's a lot of us who are here tonight who are watching online. We already know Christ. We already have that relationship with him. We're kind of like Abraham. We're a friend of God. But we're not standing in the gap for the lost. We're not praying for Sodom around us. And so, Father, I pray that you would burden our hearts, Lord, that when the judgment comes, when the judgment threatens, Lord, you could look around and see, yes, there was one, there was two, maybe there were ten, at least, who interceded on behalf of the nation. Lord, may you have your way and your will in our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Brother Mike, come and lead us in our hymn of invitation, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. want to thank you for joining with us uh, tonight there uh, online uh, and for being here in per person. And uh, Pat had just received a message, so I wanted to pass it along to you too, to be praying for Marlon Bates. Uh, they did have to airlift him to Nashville, Vanderbilt, because of a GI bleed uh, in his stomach uh, caused by a fall from his bed. So uh, just wanted to remind you to be praying for him as they've had to take him uh, to Nashville, to Vanderbilt. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close once again. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that you're doing lord we know so many who have so many different things going on uh, some lord who are very close to death's door 
uh, and with hospice that have come in. Lord, we pray that you would be with them. Lord, there are those who have upcoming surgeries tomorrow. We pray that you would be with them. Uh, Father, we pray for your will to be done, and we pray for Marlon uh, here that is in this request that's just been mentioned to us. Lord, have your hand upon him, Miss Joe and his family. And Lord, we pray for your will to be done. Guide the surgeons and those who are taking care of him. Give him wisdom and discernment. May your healing hand be upon him, and may you be glorified and honored in his life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you Wednesday night at 6 o'clock.